0: Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The growth of the internet and the online world more broadly is changing our idea of trust. Whole areas of society, from where we read our news to how we shop, how we access healthcare, education, and other public services, have changed dramatically over the last two decades. Many of the ways that we identified and trusted the people and organisations that we dealt with in the physical world are not so easy to replicate online. It's made even more difficult by the growth in social media, by deep fakes and artificial intelligence. Do we know who we're dealing with and how do we know if we can trust them? Without trust, we can't have security. The question of trust is increasingly important to CISOs and to boards in the public and in the private sector. Our guest today is Rolf von Rosing, one of the lead developers of ISACA's Digital Trust Framework. He's also a consultant working with Digital Trust and Security. I started by asking him what Digital Trust means and why it's becoming so important.
1: If you look at uh, recent research, not only from ISACA, but also from others, digital trust has become a notion or it has become a, a term that is quoted very often to, to establish or even re-establish credibility and trust between consumers and between large firms. And as we move along with digital transformation, we also observe that trust is moving from the analogue world into the digital world, but it manifests itself in different ways. It is not like a handshake in the shop, it is not like handing over cash, it is more like an abstract thing. And To get there, we probably need to look at what firms were responding uh, when they were asked, how do you see digital trust evolving over the next few years? And most firms, like almost 100% said, it's going to be the next big thing. Yes, we need to address that. And we need to be digitally trusted as well as trustworthy to maintain our client relationships and essentially our lifeblood, the business.
0: At the risk of sounding cynical, we have a next big thing at least a couple of times a year in cybersecurity. So why is this next big thing important? Why has this exercising so many great minds? Because as you said, there's quite a few organisations who put research together on this topic, and it seems to be something that's gaining quite a lot of interest among the profession, at least.
1: Allow me to be a little philosophical, just for a minute. Um, Why are we doing cybersecurity? Why are we doing uh, risk management? Why are we trying to uh, provide more digital safety, security, even all the way down to ESG, protecting binders and other things. Why are we doing this? Because essentially we want to be seen as good companies doing the right thing. So the next big thing here is to see trust as essentially the culminating point for all our practical disciplines that we we have and that we use to support our business if we're not trusted if we do not enjoy the digital trust of our customers or indeed of of society then uh, all our initiatives for you know cyber security for managing risks and things will, will come to nothing so i suppose digital trust as a as a word may sound like a buzzword but effectively Things click into place when you look at what we've done under various labels and names over these past several years, and now they're becoming uh, a more of a frameworkable, if I may, kind a term, and more of a, a unified discipline that that really addresses the the primary thing that we 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 need to look at.
0: Well, as it says in the research, and I would definitely recommend that listeners download that and I'll put a link to it in the description later on. But you know, it's well worth having a look at. But it says that it brings together disciplines that were already vital to an organisation. So, and it lists them security, risk, privacy, quality, compliance, communications, IT, marketing operations. Uh, there's probably even more that you could add to that. I mean, the one that's obviously not in that list there, because it's probably more of a supporting thing is skills. But you know, without the skilled people who understand both the technical and the regulatory and legal frameworks for this, we can't build that trust. But it makes the point that what we're trying to do here is bring together a number of separate disciplines as well as separate skills and separate technologies. And that is more a way of, if it's not too strong a way of describing it, a way of reorientating the organisation so that trust is one of its core values. Is that overstating the point, Rolf?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. We need to connect the dots and say, well, whether it's privacy and uh, GDPR, whether it's the other things that have been uh, more or less isolated silos in, in firms, if we look at the mission or what a firm, a company is trying to achieve, then I think it's, as you said, Probably the, the unifying point to say why we're we doing all this, because we want to be trusted, we want to be doing the right things. And as we see, just to add a point, the ESG dimension of things growing more and more important in, in most European countries, um, I, I think that it also addresses that by saying. Uh, you have to strive to be a trusted enterprise and you have to uh, have values that you communicate and that you're actually living. So digital trust in the shape of a framework or a unified discipline, I think will go a long way to to address that and to make sure that people uh, can adopt a a more trusted and trustworthy posture uh, across the board.
0: And there's actually a definition in the paper about this. Could you actually share that definition with us?
1: Yeah, digital trust. Uh, I have to look it up again because I don't have it here. But to be broad, you could say that digital trust uh, represents, you know, the relationships, the transactions, interactions between consumers, businesses, and other actors in the digital space to make sure that you have a trustworthy uh, and proper kind of universe in, in which you act. But that's
0: pretty much it, isn't it? Pretty much summarises it. So it's that, that point that once we move into a digital world, whether as consumers or potentially also as citizens, you know, consumers of public services, we have to have that trust and organisations have to both earn that trust and retain it. So if we look at then just briefly at the survey results before we talk about some of the issues that are behind this. I mean, organizations seem to be broadly agreeing that this is important. I think you know, 84% of respondents said digital trust was extremely important, uh, which is which is a positive. Uh, 91% of them said that uh, measuring digital trust was really important as well, uh, that that was a key thing that they needed to be doing. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of negative sentiment around this until you get to the point where you talk about money. And then if I scroll down through the report, you get to that point that only 24% of organisations were planning to increase their budgets for trust-related areas over the coming year. Now, this was published back in May. So the data will have been, I guess, from the end of of 2022. So again, with the current economic situation, that figure may even have come down slightly. But there's quite a discrepancy there between the organisations that say digital trust is really important, they need to know how trusted they are, and then those are actually prepared to invest in it what does that say to you, Rolf? Well,
1: the, the, the three things. If I may just add a figure, you remember that there were the expectations in terms of what might be the advantages or what might be, you know, the gains from actually implementing and maintaining digital trust. And you had some 27 percent, almost a quarter, expecting higher revenues. <clears throat> now, I like this figure because it says uh, companies out there, here's a question for you. Do you want to belong to the one quarter that actually does it right and makes more money? Or do you want to belong to the three quarters that do not? So, And that resolves part of the <clears throat> other paradox of you know, importance versus spending. Um, I think if you do it right, and if you attain and achieve levels of digital trust that consumers expect, they will probably reward you by bringing you more or new business. And as, much as you venture out into the digital space and you do business in a different way, new products, new digital services, other offerings, you obviously need to underpin that with the levels of trust that people expect. Otherwise, they're not going to buy what you're offering. So I like to go to this profit side of things, saying if you are a company recognizing the importance of digital trust right now, but you're not intending on spending, either the reason is that you don't know what to spend on, then you have the intent, we at Asaka have the tools, as in framework, ecosystem, other things, and then there's an easy path to go. You just embark upon that journey saying, let's take a recognized, trusted framework, and then we know where to spend and how to spend. The other answer I would give that firm is to say, well, if you're not spending because you just don't want to spend, I would point you to these 27% saying, well, do you want to belong to them? Or do you want to belong to the laggards, the 75% plus, who do not wish to spend, but who will not enjoy the benefits of trust, as it were? So there's an
0: opportunity there, certainly. But then if we look at what's driving this we get into the technical points again, that yes, you can spend money. Yes, there are certain things you can do that don't necessarily require new spending. Uh, It could be a redirection of spending or priorities changing training. But let's just step back and look at the threats. It's very difficult in the current climate to really separate the political, the geopolitical, and the practical. So especially from a point of view of individuals, and I think this is something that is drawn out not just in this research, but in other other talks that you've given. So if we take, for example, AI, if we take disinformation as a starting point, these are things that are happening external to IT security, external to business, which are undermining trust. And they're undermining trust between individuals and organizations for the most part. So is that the sort of context that lies behind ISACA and other organizations saying, actually, we need to re-establish trust. To a large extent,
1: yes, because we as ISACA, obviously, we cannot uh, control or rule the world. We can only provide the tools and uh, the frameworks and other little helpers that will enable people to get to a level of trust that they want to be or they need to be. And uh, in fact, I would say that most of these if you will, manifestations of uh, AI fraud, fakes, other things, you still find that there are always perpetrators, people, human actors behind them committing the crimes and having that sort of criminal drive to, to do these things. And um, in that sense, I think, yes, we do need to reestablish trust because uh, cyber crime and, uh, you know, modern types of fraud, they it's an arms race, you know they they're always there, and they develop, they evolve, and we have to sort of, uh, on the good side of things, come up with the right tools and come up with the right methods and uh, if you will, frameworks to make sure that there is a trusted or trustworthy environment that people can use, and there are mechanisms to re-establish trust at a higher level so that criminals, fraudsters, or others, who do not form part of that fabric uh, are at least like you know identifiable, and it makes it a little more difficult for them. But generally speaking, uh, <clears throat> there will always be this kind of uh, element of of new threats that are coming up, and we we just have to keep working on that because it, it never stops.
0: What do we know about deep fake? Sites, deep fake technologies, and potentially the misuse of AI. What are we seeing
1: in terms of the warning signals and warning signs out there? I think AI fraud, deep fakes, and other things, uh, uh, they're very much in evidence. You know, in the mornings when I look at my LinkedIn, I get, I call them my Tamagotchi. So I get fake profiles contacting me for all sorts of things and trying to uh, get into a conversation, and then they will come up with whatever it is that the humans behind it will try to achieve. But The important point here is that whether it's AI or whether it's deepfakes, um, there will always be uh, human actors behind that uh, with the intent of exploiting whatever weaknesses or, you know, doing all sorts of other things. AI by itself can be a risky thing, but uh, it has its limitations and it will always have its limitations. Um, That is part of the system. And if we at least try to uh, regulate or control AI properly, and I don't mean over-regulating it, but if we try to sort of provide clear guidelines on how AI should be used, can be used, and should not be used, then that will go a long way towards making sure that we mitigate, we reduce the risk to a certain extent. And then the deep fakes will also be something that can always be done using AI or using other techniques. But, uh, Here I think, again, it's up to human beings to be aware of uh, these deepfakes, to understand uh, how they manifest themselves and how to deal with them. Um, And Some research, which I would have to find for you, uh, has also shown that people are fairly good intuitively at identifying deepfakes when they know how to do that. Um, So I suppose Educating people, providing the right kind of knowledge, providing information and uh, creating awareness is, is something extremely important to, to deal with these new threats.
0: What do we know about the people or the organisations that are behind these attacks or these threats?
1: We have vague information and uh, I think maybe that's for other people to say uh, who are in an official position uh, uh, and dealing with these things. But What we know is that there are various actors ranging from, you know, experimental hackers to uh, nation-state actors, and they all sort of uh, uh, work with new vulnerabilities and new threats as they did in the 90s and in the 2000s. Um, But I think uh, we do not know enough to say, well, we can attribute this or that to uh, uh, a certain actor or a certain group of of people acting.
0: Is there a general objective to destabilise through these means? And clearly it's nation states who would potentially have the most to gain from that, but there may be others. There are some other political groupings that would potentially benefit as well. Or is that more a consequence of people trying out new technologies and new ways of doing things? And if that creates a less stable environment online. Looking at online in the broad sense from social media to e-commerce, that's just a collateral damage effect. They don't really care because they're using it to do other things.
1: I'm old enough to remember times of, uh, say, the Cold War, when propaganda w- was carried out using printed newspapers, television, radio and other things. So I don't see any reason why it should be different today. The means are different, but the objective uh, is probably the same. So that's as old as human history. Uh, as for trying out new technologies, I think <clears throat> these new ways of using AI, using deepfakes and other things, um sometimes are used experimentally to see how you can uh, commit old forms of of crime but in a new space, in a new universe. So uh, things like uh, coercion, blackmailing, uh, scams, uh, all the things that we've seen in these past 10 to 20 years, um, they are still you know, the same letters of the criminal code, but the means are different. So I would say, yes, there is a lot of experimental use of, of new technologies to, to see how they could be used for, for criminal purposes.
0: And does the fact that some groups are willing to use these techniques to destabilise, whether that's around politics or other activities, does that have an effect on businesses where you require that trust between the individual and the business or the individual and their government. So, for example, the fact that certain groups are sending out fake news to undermine established news outlets, for example, and then there's less public trust in news outlets. Does that mean there is less public trust online generally, or is that more of an isolated problem in those particular spheres?
1: That's difficult to answer. I should say that destabilizing traditional media and uh, destabilizing traditional channels of communicating information is, is a risk. On the other hand, uh, there is the, if you will, the fair opportunity for people reading these things to use all sorts of sources to validate or corroborate what they're reading. So in some forms or in some types of <clears throat> channels for communication you would probably find that uh, there are people with if you will very sort of set opinions on things and they would not necessarily reflect the opinions that you see in mainstream media uh, however that that phenomenon again is not too new. Uh, it used to be that you had political gatherings or you had groupings meeting and communicating in, in internet relay chat channels. Uh, and that was in the 90s. And, you know, they were the ones with the little green men and the spaceships, and they really believed in that. So um, I, I should say that trying to destabilize, <coughs> excuse me, is it's probably happening and going to happen in the future. But on the other hand, you have uh, many powerful forces that uh uh, you know, relative to these small groups or these small destabilizing elements, can provide a, a background of sort of impartial uh, information that, that people can draw from.
0: But that takes us then on to the question of what trust is and how we understand it. Because when you talk about propaganda, when we talk about activists, you know, if you, you would make a judgment based on the way somebody came across, whether that was in person at a meeting, demonstration, on the TV, even, and and you know that person was there. Now we've got not just the tools to do it; we've actually got the way of automating. We've got AI that can do these things at at volume, which is probably one of the also uh, the the big changes. So, again, if we look at propaganda back in. In the Cold War, it was a manual process. It was time-consuming. You had to be very skilled. Now you can throw things into a generative AI tool and it will go off and create something that is you know, reasonably convincing. When you put all those things together, does that tell us something about how we then establish trust as human beings between us and the counterparty? And then that would be relevant to the question of whether people trust organisations when they're doing business with them or transacting with them?
1: What I've said in, in recent talks you know, is that we will have to get accustomed to the notion of truth as a probability space rather than absolute truth. Uh, in the 1960s, in a court of law, a negative from a camera would have been uh, uh, irrefutable evidence. Nowadays, digital photographs can be anything you are right. I would say that maybe uh, probability spaces is this thing believable, is it credible, yes or no, you might come up with a percentage saying, well, 50% it may be true or 95% it may be true. So to get to that estimation or to get to that judgment, I I suppose you'll have to have artifacts of trust that accompany the thing. So for instance, if you, Stephen, talk to me, and do I know if it's Stephen or if it's a Stephen avatar, then I would attribute trust to you as a person based on the fact that Ellie introduced you, that we've talked before, that, you know, I know what you look like, I know your voice. And all of these attributes increase the probability of, you know, uh, it being true. And uh, that is the same, I guess, for, for everything. In this modern world, we just have to be a little more careful. And uh, digital trust is one way or one notion of getting there by saying, well, how many factors are in there that make me trust this picture or this piece of news. But the absolute truth that people are looking for uh, uh, never exists. So this is where where trust models, frameworks uh, and, and tools come in to help us uh, understand if we can trust the information, yes or no.
0: That idea of trust as a percentage or a scale is actually really interesting. And I think then that comes back to the link between the wider question of who do we trust online, do we know who someone is online, which is a societal issue or a political issue, and the business issue of can I authenticate this transaction? And if I'm not trusted by the people who need to interact with me, then that's going to reduce their willingness to to trade uh, and it can make the trade process have more friction, have more delay, have more cost in it because you have to then undertake other measures to ensure that the person that you're dealing with or the organisation you're dealing with is who it purports to be. And that's where we now start to come into the question of security. And when you look at trust frameworks and when you look at the tools that are there in the digital space, to what extent can they counter some of these problems? And to what extent do we still have to rely on back channels, human relationships, and and
1: standard due diligence, really? I would love to say... uh... Let's try to rely on these latter elements uh, like we did in the past, but obviously uh, uh, in this day and age, the speed and the efficiencies uh, prevent us from doing that. So I think there have been very useful developments ranging from blockchain to uh, cyber maturity certification and various other things that have done a lot to uh, ensure we can trust people, transactions, companies, or you know, even data. and. Uh, All these tools are, are, I think, instrumental in in creating trust. We just have to bring them into alignment and understand what we use where and and how we use them. Because if we just use them in an isolated way, then a smart contract can be uh, fail-safe in terms of who signed it and who forwarded it. But does that tell you anything about the content of what's in the contract? No, it doesn't. Uh, legally speaking, it may be uh, not a good thing to do. So, all these security uh, elements uh, that form like a mesh of, you know, trust or that corroborate certain facts and certain uh, uh, integrity things around data. We we need to understand them as tools, but we need to direct them and organize them to to make sure that we can get a maximum out of the technology side of things. And we can, uh, if you will, reduce the human back channels to a minimum.
0: And there are some specific data points in the research that Isaka carried out. So Consequences of a lack of digital trust 63% of respondents thought that their reputation would decline, 59% thought they would suffer more cybersecurity incidents, and 58% more privacy breaches. That's before we even get into the potential to lose customers and so forth. So there is actually a connection there between trust or perceived trust and actually vulnerabilities. So are we seeing that because, again, it causes us to lower our guard to be more circumstantial, or are we actually seeing? Are we seeing hackers specifically use some of these disinformation tools, these deep fake tools, to actually breach defenses? I mean, ransomware and phishing attacks would be the obvious one, but there may be other vectors as well.
1: That pendulum is always swinging. And uh, maybe in, in the past couple of years, um, or you know, in the corona years, because people were working from home, people did not have uh, the kind of connect with their offices, their work environment maybe that uh, sort of sparked a wave of attacks. And it is possible that right now the pendulum seems to be swinging more to the side of, yes, we have more attacks, they're becoming more sophisticated. Um, By that same token, I think the pendulum is also going to swing back as we develop more elaborate defences, as we move forward with this digital trust thing, and it matures and becomes a a must-have for more and more companies, then I I would expect that, The defensive side, like the good guys, uh, will have, you know, the advantage for a little while, but uh, it always swings back and forth. So maybe now we see more of a wave of disinformation, destabilization, other forms of uh, cybercrime. But um, I'm I'm confident that we'll be able to to, uh, stop that and bring it back to normal levels.
0: There are a couple of barriers, as you would expect from a survey like this, and certainly the key one that identified was 52% of respondents said there was a lack of skills and training was a barrier to obtaining trust. So. Is that something that you expect to be more important over the remainder of this year and going into 2024?
1: Yes, most definitely. I mean, we used to have a similar thing in in cybersecurity. Uh, Three, four years ago, people were saying we do not have enough cybersecurity skills, we do not have enough trained people to actually do this. We could see then that there were lots of, you know, uh, sub-academic and fully academic uh, 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 training opportunities. Uh, The whole area got formalized in terms of educational content. And we as ASACA, as a learning organization, we are always trying to provide exactly that, Uh, not only a body of knowledge, but also a community, uh, an education path, a way forward to tell people, okay, if you want to become a digital trust practitioner, here is what you should do, here are the various stages and levels, this is the content. And um, we very actively try to uh, bring this onto the table and uh, to provide to our companies and our our, our individual members uh, exactly that way forward. So I would hope that over the next two or three years, we will see more and more digital trust content coming up. So it becomes easier to upskill people and it becomes a little more predictable and, and formalized.
0: As when you talk about the pendulum swinging, at the moment we are seeing a lot of talk, particularly because of the growth of and popularity of generative AI. We have a lot of talk about, you know, what is trusted content, uh, whether information that you research online is genuine. Are some of these answers that are coming up actually in themselves fake? And then going down into are the people who are putting this information out there actually genuine in themselves? or are they genuine people? As you said, at the end of a chain, there actually are genuine people, but those genuine people have malicious intent, so they're criminals or nation state actors. We're seeing all that at one level. That seems to be generating a lot of publicity and a lot of concern, but at the same time, we've got a series of measures which are maturing Organisations seem to be supporting them, broadly speaking, and your research backs that out as does research from others. But that seems quite closed and quite focused and quite specialist. So we've got a big popular concern about AI, deepfakes, fake news. And at the same time, we've got a small group of highly specialist technical people who are coming up with what looks to me at least like a bit of a a niche solution that at the moment hasn't really crossed over into the popular understanding even among business leaders as something they actually need to be doing. Is that fair, firstly, and secondly, is that simply a stage that we need to go through because technical people will come up with a solution and then it'll be less technical people who need to publicize that solution and ensure it's adopted across their organizations?
1: I think it's a fair observation. We're standing at the beginning of, of the big AI movement and AI is only just beginning to become part of our daily life whether it's uh, supportive or generative AI. Now, uh, it resembles, to, to, to my recollection a bit, um, the beginnings of the open source movement in the mid-90s, where people said, well, we do not wish to stay in the hands of the large tech firms from the United States, we need to do something different. And um, as far as we can see, or as far as I can, I can see in the marketplace, um, there will be these pioneers bringing out the experimental forms of artificial intelligence. And yes, there will be a black box to most people, except for a few boffins sitting down there in the engine room. In the end, as it gets socialized amongst broader uh, sort of circles in society and end users, obviously there will be more like an open source-ish movement that will... First off, establish common control, as they did with code in uh, in the old Linux thing. So many, many pairs of eyes are looking at things, and therefore the view on things becomes a little more objective. And that will also help, I suppose, to weed out uh, misuse or you know sort of criminal use of all these things. Pieces of code used to be rejected when they were not validated by the community at large or when the hash was changed. And I suppose with AI products or the outputs of AI, we're going to see uh, similar things. If I program an AI like a chat GPT to learn German, and I only... Uh, give it party speeches from old east germany then you know the thing's going to sound like a communist party chairman which is probably funny but i don't think it's going to survive very long if it's in an open source community that validates uh uh, you know across continents across societies and says well this one's okay that one is not okay um so we are pioneering it and there may be concerns that there's a few people ruling the world but i don't think That's going to last for too long.
0: I'm going to ask you one last question, and that is within the organization, who should be responsible for this? And I appreciate it is a nascent field for a lot of organizations still.
1: Who would you put in charge? For those firms that are a little larger and that have, say, a a person dealing with digital transformation, it makes sense to uh, concentrate, if you will, Uh, the overall responsibility or direction of the effort towards digital trust in in those hands or in that uh, business unit. For SMEs, I suppose, as you said, it's more of a skills thing. Um, You will likely have a person who deals with these things, whether that sits in privacy, whether that sits with a CISO or with a head of IT. Um, it's an open question. And in a, in a period of transition before this thing becomes a formalized function or position inside a firm, uh, I think the smaller the firm, the more pragmatic you'll have to be.
0: Ralph Van Rossing on the influence of AI on trust and how we can regulate it, as well as the question of who should take responsibility for digital trust within our organizations. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll look at security in the cloud and how cloud misconfiguration is causing some real problems. That will be live in two weeks' time. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon or Spotify. Thanks again for listening.